and Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to the Horse and Hound podcast. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound. Well, I hope everyone had a great Easter, whatever you were up to. Perhaps you were able to get your horse out to a show or cross-country schooling or doing some arena hire, or maybe you even did a bit of outdoor socialising. My mum took the turkey that she'd been saving since Christmas out of the freezer and we ate it in the garden on Easter Friday, which was great fun and I think something a lot of families have been doing since the lockdown has eased slightly. This week, our guest is the Olympic event rider Kitty King. Will be telling us about her top horses, including the up-and-coming star Crystal Fontaine. He's quite a funny character. You know, he's great to ride and a super kind of competition horse. Not the most charming in the stable. He um, likes his own own space and can pull some pretty funky faces at you. I'll also be talking to our news desk about issues around EU stud books, new research on why being brave might not always be the right thing for riders, and makeup on show ponies. Finally, we'll be joined by Ricky Farr of Farr and Percy Equine to talk about what his practice is doing to lead the way when it comes to being green in the horse world. You probably say to yourself, hang on a minute, uh, climate change has got nothing to do with my horse and sustainability has got nothing to do with my horse. Actually, I, I beg to differ. So that's enough from me. Clip on your air jacket and let's get going. I'm pleased to introduce today's guest, the Rio Olympian and European team silver medalist, Kitty King. Hello, Kitty. Welcome to the Horse and Ham podcast. Oh, hi there. It's great to great to be on. And um, yeah, that intro sounded um, quite good when you say it like that. I kind of never <laughs> think of myself in those words. It's really weird when someone says it out loud. So yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, well, it's, it's great to have you on. And it, it's definitely true. I looked it up and everything. So uh, <laughs> there we go. Now, Kitty, you have had your three top horses out at the elite fixtures that have sort of kicked off this eventing season. Firstly, you were at the training event at Aston and then recently also at the elite competition at Aston. How has it been to get back out competing after a long, extra long winter this time? Oh, it's been brilliant to get them out. And, um, you know, I'm really grateful to the event organisers and to be for putting on these um, elite trainings and elite events. So we kind of had the opportunity to try and get our, our top horses out and run in and round the advance and things on, you know, on super ground. Whereas later on in the summer it always gets firmer so really appreciative to be able to get them out there and hopefully now be able to look at plans going forward with them for um, you know potential three days and and things like that. Yes great let's talk in a little more detail about those sort of top horses and what their their plans are and where they're going to be going so all three of your rides finished in the top 10 at Aston let's start with with Kaylor Lan he ran in the open intermediate for seventh and I can't believe he's 14 years old now I still kind of think of him as an up-and-coming horse but tell us about he how he's feeling and and what his plan is. Um, he's he's on um, you know great form at the moment and and feeling really good he doesn't you know he doesn't feel like a a 14 year old but then equally he's had you know the last few years he's had quieter years so you know he's he's not kind of done a three day for a good bit um and i think that kind of suits him better so we're actually going to be focusing on the short formats with him um now and you know trying to really enjoy him and pick up some nice um nice placings and prizes at the at the short formats is is his kind of main goal so he can have a really enjoyable but 
you know, productive kind of latter part of his career. Yeah, uh, great to hear that because he is such a smart horse on the flat and, and when he's on form, I feel like he could be so competitive in those in those short format events. So that seems like a, a really exciting plan going forward for him. And then you had the pair of greys in the advanced sections and Crystal Fontaine finished sixth in his. He is still only a nine-year-old and he seems to be a horse who's been incredibly successful right up through the levels every single time he's run. What is he like as a, as a character? Oh, he's he's quite a funny character. Um, he's you know he's great to great to ride and a super kind of competition horse and you know seems to always you know pull it out the bag at the events and he's a very careful jumper and he's very quick cross country because he doesn't he doesn't pull um, and he's one that you kind of can keep kicking so he's always yeah pretty competitive and really fun to have out at events. He's not the most charming in the stable. Um, he um, likes his own own space and can pull some pretty funky faces at you. And um, yeah, the girls have to be wary of his of his teeth and things like that. So he's he's not the most lovely on the ground. So they they get the the girls who work for me get the brunt of of him and the worst of him. And I get to enjoy um, the best bits of him, which which is which is great because he's you know he's a real competition horse and doesn't like doesn't like fuss and and pampering basically. <laughs> and he is grey as I said so I feel like there's going to be quite a lot of fuss and pampering in keeping him clean which is probably not ideal for him no not ideal and he's a very white grey as well so it's quite a hard job for Chloe um, my travelling groom who comes everywhere with him trying to keep him absolutely pristine personal white because um, yeah he, as I say he doesn't like the uh, the fuss and he his personal hygiene in his stable wouldn't be the most fantastic so um with that with being kind of white as white yeah she does have her work cut out with him oh well i'm giving plaudits to chloe because he looked very white when i saw him at aston so definitely a shout out for her there <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then of course there is vondra de Biatz. he was second in his section at aston and he's the horse who finished best of the british contingent at the 2019 european championships our most recent championships although it seems a, a while ago now let's take a little more time to talk about him in some detail can you start off by telling us how you first came to to find him and to ride him? Yeah, um, I was actually watching the Burley Young Event Horse class at um, Badminton. Um, I can't even remember which year this was in, um, but it was when he was just turning just turning five, and um, I saw um, Lucy Vigasma there and said oh, I was looking for you know some young horses, and um, she'd said that they'd got a a French Biatz horse with them um, that might suit me and um, it might be worth kind of popping down to have a, a look at him. So I kind of booked to go down to see him. They had told me on the phone that he was a little bit, um, a little bit cold backed at times and could throw some funky shapes, but that he would been getting a lot, a lot better. So um, I went down to see him and he kind of had his head over the door and I thought, Oh, you know, I hope that's him. It's lovely head. And it was, so I was like, oh, that's great. And then they pulled his rugs off and stood him up. And I was like, oh, you're a little bit disappointing, <laughs> which felt felt bad um, thinking that now. But um, they pulled him out and kind of trotted him up and he trotted off in a bit of a French fashion, kind of dragging his feet and didn't look overly inspiring. But I thought, well, you come all the way down to Devon and, you know, Lucy and Porig are not a bad judge of a horse, so it's worth seeing some tack on him. 
And he was a completely different horse, you know, under saddle. He looked a lot more athletic. Um, he was a nice mover. He had kind of three good paces and he had a, you know, nice, easy, easy way of going and easy jump. So um thought he would be a, you know, a great horse for a little syndicate that I had in mind and got him vetted and brought him kind of, I suppose it was middle of May um, in his five-year-old, five-year-old year. Um, and um, I've had a, you know, obviously awful lot of fun with him since he's quite a character and he is good at bucking you off and he's still got that that kind of streak in him when he wants but um you know on the whole he's very special horse to have in the yard Mm, and he has had a a lot of good results as he's come up through the levels he's also had the old blip which i think perhaps is because he has moved up quickly sometimes just his greenness has shown would you agree with that oh definitely i mean he won a four-star short at hartbury as an eight-year-old but because he was always putting himself kind of well up there after the dressage and show jumping and in a good position then people I think always notice when he then had a you know a green mistake whereas if he'd been middle end of the dressage and had a fence or two down no one would barely even notice he was at the event if he'd had a 20 if that makes sense whereas I think because he was always competitive after the first two phases if he did have a a green error then it did get you know noticed a lot a lot more and you know he was he was young and you know they're all entitled to make mistakes whilst they're you know whilst they're learning hmm and talk us through your 2019 he went to his first badminton and that didn't work out brilliantly what happened there um well he was only 10 and i hadn't really entered him with the intention of particularly running him there um because obviously the entries go in at the beginning of of march and i just felt he may be ready or he might not but at that point you couldn't tell because you hadn't had your spring runs so I thought if I don't put an entry in and he's ready to go I have no chance of going um so I put the entry in and he actually had a super kind of spring campaign and he he went nicely at Belton in the four star and did a you know steady double clear I think it was and then he went to Burnham Market and won the advanced so there was no reason to not take him to badminton because he'd done everything as well as he could in the build-up. But I, at the back of my mind, I was, you know, thinking, oh, is he lacking a little bit of, of mileage because he is only 10? Um, and he went there and he produced a, a very good test. I think he was top 10 after the two days of um, of dressage. And then he, you know, went a little bit green on the, on the cross-country. But unfortunately, you know, a few things kind of, went against us in the start so whether he was as switched on as he would normally be and whether that played into the problems we then later had on the course I'm not sure but we basically um in the start box they shouted at me to stop because Tom McEwen is gonna was just about to come into the arena to finish so when you've got a horse warmed up primed ready to go and then you have to stop at five seconds as they're about to jump out the start box. That was a little bit tricky. So then you're taking a turn and they said, oh, they'll restart you in a minute. And then they said, oh, no, there's a hold. Tom had ju- uh, broken a pin and it was going to be a bit longer. And I was in basically I was in the main arena for over 20 minutes and they didn't have any fences up to give the horse a pop over in the main arena or just outside um, in the kind of 10 minute box. Um, and it was too far to go back to the warm up 
um because it's quite a long walk and they didn't know how long i would have so the horse fundamentally hadn't done a fence for by now over half an hour when we got sent out he, we just weren't really switched on and warmed up like we would normally be so whether that caused a few of the issues we had just because we hadn't really had the uh the right prep because of being held in the in the start so that was a real a real shame and then yeah a couple of fences um found us out and that was the end of our um end of our badminton but i think things always happen for a for a reason and um we kind of regrouped he had a run round i think the oi at aston to make sure he hadn't lost any confidence and then we went to bramham where he was um you know absolutely fantastic and won the four star long there really well and made it feel very easy and he felt like a real schoolmaster around the track yeah and it's really interesting to hear that about badminton because you know we see these results on the horse's record but it just doesn't always tell the full story does it and to hear how you then sort of rebuild confidence from there as you say you went to Bramham he had a win there he went to Burgham and won there and from there you were selected for the European Championships what do you remember about that sort of build up and, and the selection that summer? Um, I mean obviously I was a little bit concerned that I'd get overlooked because you know he has had some blips in the past and obviously badminton didn't go to plan so I didn't know whether they would forgive him although he'd gone very well after badminton I was you never quite know what the selectors are thinking. So I was concerned that they wouldn't forgive him for his kind of past mistakes. Um, so um, I was quite keen to go to to Arken. So I'd applied to see whether I could be, you know, considered for Arken. Um, and they said that they wouldn't be selecting me. So I was then really disappointed because I thought, oh God, I can't even be remotely on their radar if they won't even let me go to Arken. So um, I kind of thought, oh, well, that's the end of, our kind of championship kind of dream so to speak and then um i was speaking to dickie at a at a team training and i said oh i'm really you know i was really disappointed i didn't even get a look in for arkin and i just thought they might want him to go there to prove that you know he is consistent and he is a good horse and they're like oh no he's done enough that's why you're not there and i was like oh i thought it's the other way around i thought that you'd written him off um, so that gave me a, a bit of hope. And, um, you know, when he went to Bergen and, and went up there, then I was really hopeful that I would be getting a, a nice phone call in the not too distant future. So I was you know, delighted when, when Dickie called me to um, say that I'd been selected for the championships. Yeah, so that was a, a bit of a turnaround from thinking you were totally out of the picture to finding out that you'd already done enough. And <laughs> in that build-up, when did you sort of find out that you'd be riding as an individual and sort of what your what your draw was going into Le Moulin? Um, I didn't really know what the draw would be, um, but I was aware that I'd probably likely be in, an individual from fairly early stages, I think it was. So, um, so that was, you know, great. It meant you know he's a he was a younger horse and I could um you know really focus on on him without having the pressures of um being in a team situation yeah and uh so you did your dressage on Friday afternoon in the end tell us how that first phase went oh I was really tough with him he he really really tried in the arena he can be a little bit of a monkey he's quite a cheeky character um and he can kind of have a spook at cameras and be a bit naughty because he thinks it's really quite amusing and quite funny. So um, I was delighted at how focused he was and that he, you know, really was on his A game and his his cheeky side didn't didn't 
come out. Um, he made a really annoying mistake in his um, extended trot um, and broke. So you lost marks for not only the extended, which he broke in, but also there were marks for the transition at the beginning and the end. So that was also marked down. So that was a really expensive mistake. And his extended trot is one of his highlights normally. So that was annoying because I know there's yeah, so much more there. But other than that, you know, he really did his absolute utmost. And, you know, I felt did one of his best tests to date at that point, other than that little mistake. So, you know, I was I was delighted with how he coped with the atmosphere and um, with how he went. Great. And he was lying eighth. He did a 27.9 was his score at the end of that phase. And tell us about the cross country. What were your impressions of the course and, and how was the ride that he gave you? Um, I thought it was, um, you know, a very kind of technical track. Um, I actually thought it would cause a lot more problems than it, it did. It seemed to ride a lot better than I had anticipated. And also, I think, better than a lot of... Um, riders and had anticipated you know there were a lot of skinnies and curving lines and places where you had to really be on you know on your a game to make sure you didn't have a a silly mistake and um i think it kind of probably gave you a lot of respect at the track and um i actually rode really well and he get you know he gave me a fantastic fantastic ride and he was up on all his minute markers right until the last kind of two minutes and then I suddenly I don't know where I lost my time and I'm yeah still kicking myself for the couple of time faults that we we had because we didn't re we didn't need to have them he was you know as I say he was he was up on all his minute markers and then suddenly the last two minutes I was suddenly down and then it's really hard to to make it up and um those time faults cost him an individual bronze so it was really rather expensive yeah that's what I was just about to say was I think those time faults did in the end cost him an individual medal he show jumped clear and finished seventh so oh frustrating but still a brilliant result for a young horse at a championship to to finish inside the top 10 and you were the best of the Brits as I said earlier and Presumably, you sort of came out of that Europeans full of high hopes for 2020. And then, you know, 2020 wasn't the year that any of us expected or hoped for. How did your mindset sort of alter through that year? And how did you regroup? To be honest, I'm quite, I think, quite a level person mentally. And I just was like, well, you know, you can only control the controllables and whether the Olympics were going to run or not run, it was something that was completely out of my control. So I just kind of kept focusing on the things that I could do, which was keep training the horses, trying to get them mentally right so that, that they weren't getting bored or sour or being overtrained. And, you know, compared to a lot of people, I think I probably had a, a very nice lockdown. You know, I'm very grateful to have had the horses um, because life here other than not being able to go out and about, was very much like normal. So I think anyone with horses during lockdown would probably, like me, extremely grateful to have them, um, because I think otherwise uh, it would have driven me mad <laughs> being at home all the time. So, um, yeah, very grateful to be to have the horses to work with. Yeah. And Vondra um, Dibiatz, he, uh, he did a few competitions last year and had a couple of wins and good results in the summer. And then I think the end of the year wasn't maybe quite what you might have hoped for with him. No, um, he'd been, you know, on fantastic form and I was planning to take him to, to Poe. Um, and our last run was 
was little downham and that didn't go to didn't go to plan unfortunately he he is a horse he's not great when he's fresh um you know he's better when he's kind of run fairly consistently and we were meant to go to cornbury in the oi and then go to little downham but then burnham market added a four star for older horses so i thought oh well that will be better than going to cornbury which was the week before so withdrew from cornbury went up to burnham market and to be honest the ground just really wasn't good enough for him to warrant running on at that kind of point before a big three day so decided oh you know he's been on good form it's fine if he doesn't have the run just did my dressage and show jumping at burnham and withdrew him and then he went to little downham and he was a bit fresh not really focused and it didn't you know just didn't go to plan at all and I could have still taken him to Poe but it was an awful long way to go so you know when we do get to a five star I really want to you know really want to prove to everybody you know what a what a good horse he is and um, them not write him off for kind of annoying silly mistakes. Yeah, hopefully we will see him out at a five star on his on his very best form and his very best prep. And that will be exciting for you and for everybody watching him too. Kitty, final question just to round off. I know you've got a lot of very smart young horses in your yard as well. Uh, give us one that the listeners should watch out for this year. Oh, dear. That's quite a tricky one. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I'll let you have two if it's really tricky. <laughs> um, no, I've got some I've got some lovely um, young horses. I've got two really nice six-year-olds that I'm really excited about. They're both very different. Oak Birdie, he's owned by Lindsay Caldwell and Sue Brendish. And then uh, the other six-year-old is called RSH Mumbag Marshall, who's jointly owned by um, a lady called Joe Jones, who works for me part-time. And my mother, so that's really nice that they've got a lovely horse because obviously they're very kind of involved in my in my team, um, not only being owners but helping as well. So it's it's nice that they've got a you know a lovely horse and lovely interest. And then two seven-year-olds owned by the same owner um, who's called Adrian Sweet, and they're both Mumbeg horses. So it's Mumbeg Hendrix and MHS Mumbeg Junior. So they're yeah, four really nice horses, and I'm really excited to see what they. Um, you know what they'll do this season well i think you're gonna have to just promise not to tell any other riders that i let you name four horses else everyone's <laughs> gonna expect me to be so generous i'm obviously feeling weak today <laughs> i'm terrible at, at making decisions <laughs> uh, I'm well <laughs> i'm sure they're all smart young horses and uh, we'll be looking out for all of them thank you very much for joining us today kitty and good luck for the rest of the season oh thank you very much So I'm joined today by three of my colleagues from Horse and Hound. So first of all, it's a hello to our showing editor, Alex Robinson. How are you, Alex? Yeah, I'm really well, thank you. Have you been able to get out to any shows or do much riding? Yeah, so I've actually been to my first competition of the year, which was the NCPA Lancashire show, and I did two classes there. I was so tired, um, yeah, having to get up at 4am, I've definitely not missed that, but it was so nice to get back out and, and see everyone and everyone's new ponies. So yeah, it's been lovely. Oh, and did you bring home any rosettes? Crucial question. Well, I, yeah, I achieved a, I got a first and a championship in hand, uh, which was lovely, but I have to admit that's more of my pony's talent than mine. <laughs> but um, yeah, so ended up with a win, which was, yeah, great. 
Ah, that's lovely to hear. Good work. Well done, Alex. Keeping the horse in hand, end up in the show ring. (laughs) And hello also today to our news editor, Eleanor Jones. How's it going with you, Eleanor? Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Got out to two shows on on Saturday and Sunday, which was, oh, it's just amazing. Just fab to be back out and jumping again. Oh, and the girls going well? Yeah, I think um, (laughs) the least said about mine and the big girls show on Saturday, the better. I was rusty and she was just so excited when we got there that her legs were literally shaking. (laughs) (laughs) and uh, you know occasionally she doesn't just knock fences down she annihilates them so we'll move swiftly on to Sunday when I think I have my eye back in uh, a bit better and my lovely grey mare just carried me around and we got a rosette Ah, good work. Well, Team Horse and Hound is doing well this week then. And we also have with us Becky Murray, our news writer, who is up in Scotland. And I don't think the weather's being so kind to you, Becky, as to the rest of us, is it? No, we seem to have gone back in time and we have snow again. So that's just great fun. (laughs) Oh, so no riding for you while you're sweeping away the snow? Well, at the weekend, I did have some, it was lovely and sunny, and I was actually out riding in the field. But I think my Shetland ponies were plotting against me that day, as I was having a nice canter around and Mooty and Poppet on the other side of the fence thought it looked lots of fun. So they exploded into canter and went racing up the fence line, which got Chloe rather excited. So she had a spectacular explosion wanting to join her buddies. So um, I did stay on and I was able to laugh once I got Chloe back down to earth. And our new goal is getting Chloe to concentrate while being exercised near naughty Shetland ponies. <laughs> oh, well, well done for not falling off. Well, <laughs> I'm pleased to report that I was able to ride twice over the week Easter weekend as well. Did a flat work session and also had a jump. My first time jumping since October, although Alfie has been doing some uh, loose jumping and jumping on the lunge with mum. So it was really great to feel that he was still uh, still had his eye in and was uh, definitely feeling stronger through his back than he normally would if he had had that long off jumping with me. So that was a, a real positive for us. <laughs> right, over to the serious news. And Becky, we're going to start with you today. You have been looking at a story about registering British bred horses with EU stub books. What has changed here since Brexit? Well, since Brexit, EU stud books must apply to DEFRA for something that's called an extension of breeding territory into the UK. And like you say, this is in order for British breeders to register horses with foreign stud books. So all your EU sport horse stud books, for example, must apply to DEFRA. Now, this has really come under the spotlight as the Oldenburg stud book in Germany got in touch with UK breeders to inform them that DEFRA has denied Oldenburg this permission which is really quite big news for UK breeders who choose to use a stud book. Mm. Did you speak to, to some breeders who were affected by that? Yes, I spoke to Caroline Ironside of Murray Firth Stud in Scotland. Now, Caroline regularly uses the Oldenburg stud book for a number of her foals, and this is her preference. She also sells horses to buyers in Germany, and for the German Young Horse Championships, the Bundeschampionat, they have to be registered with a German universal equine life number. So by not being able to register for the likes of Oldenburg, Caroline's concerned this is going to affect how she sells her horses and really it's the fact that choice has been taken away from breeders. Mm, Okay. And what did DEFRA have to say about the situation? Well, DEFRA told me that Oldenburg was not approved because there are other stud books for this type of horses already approved in the UK. But Oldenburg will have the opportunity to ask for a reconsideration. 
I did raise with DEFRA which other study books have been refused or approved, but DEFRA wouldn't comment on this. So I also did approach some other EU study books, and one that did respond was the German Holsteiner study book, and they confirmed they have been approved by DEFRA. So I think it will be interesting and quite possibly concerning over the next while as we find out more in regards to who has and hasn't applied or who has or hasn't been approved. And I think there's certainly a lot more to come on this topic with the introduction of some new EU law this month. Okay, well, we'll be keeping an eye on that. And as you say, hopefully more information will come out about which stud books are and are not available to British bred horses in in the new world, so to speak. And uh, our news team, as ever, will have their eye on that Brexit situation. Thank you, Becky. Now, Eleanor, you have been looking at a research story this week about rider attitudes. Can you give us a bit of an overview of what that's about? Yeah, this, I found this fascinating. Um, this was a study done by social anthropologist uh, Rosie Jones-McVeigh, who, and I find all her work fascinating because it's all about sort of the psyche of, of British horse people. And she spent a long time with a number of riders, sort of, you know, almost living with them. <laughs> and she was looking into um, sort of their their take on, on bravery. And it, she found that many of her subjects sort of seemed to revel in the fact that horse riding was a physical sport and that fear was um, not seen as something that should affect your decision making as a rider and that riders should, uh, she used the great word, respond to recognised risk with gumption, uh, which is a fantastic word. But she was also saying that most of the, the people she was working with did have confidence issues of some sort. And she sort of then went into the fact that there was this sort of, uh, as I think we all have seen um, to various extents over the year, there was this, if the horse was seen as being naughty, then the rider would be sort of told by trainers and other people to get tough and, you know, you're wimping out. You need to get tough and kick on and get on with it. And she said she'd heard things from the trainer like, well, he's laughing at you and so are we. And it was almost like bullying the rider into bullying the horse. Gosh, and and if riders do sort of get told to be brave or get tough, what are some of the concerns around those attitudes? Well, she there was always the concern that, you know, if, if you're told that your horse is being, quote, naughty and you've got to get tough with it, there's often the, you know, sort of turn the whips up, up, upside down and give them a good kick. And, you know, so there was the physical punishment of, of use of whips and spurs and, and maybe sort of rough hands on the horse. So there was that as a welfare issue. But the other concern was that, you know, if if, if say you were a nervous rider and thinking, well, I need to be brave and do this and kick on, that you might then be go, uh, trying things that would actually too much for you and your horse and there could be then the risk of injury or or you know a, a loss of your horse's confidence and, and one thing she said was that's not worth gambling on your your horse's experiences mm, okay I think that's something this is sort of the kind of thing that we've all experienced in the horse mm. world you know those sort of attitudes I think um it's funny I was talking to some friends on the weekend who are not horsey um and they were sort of asking about what the limiting factors are in my own riding in terms of whether it was fear or whether it was skill or whether it was fitness and how that relates into the fact that I actually don't ride that much and it's funny when you start to sort of look at those things from an outsider's perspective I'm sure you've had experiences of, of being told to, to be brave and get on with it, Eleanor or you've seen that yourself in in the horse world yeah definitely and and as um dr jones mcveigh says sometimes what can sort of complicate this is that sometimes it does work because sometimes you kick on and you get the adrenaline going and you have a fantastic round and then that sort of proves that it works and and also there are some people who you know a bit of a, a shouting at 
I know sometimes like I need a bit of a shout out to get my backside in gear and come on, get on with it. But there's a there's a fine line between and, and a good trainer will know that the people that you can have a bit of a shout at and it will make them you know, help them do better. And there's a fine line between that and then bullying. And she's saying, you know, I'm absolutely not saying that telling people to kick on is always wrong, but just, you know, think about it. And and maybe if you're feeling that you are possibly being bullied, that maybe those aren't the lessons that work best for you. Mm, I guess different people learn and are motivated mm. by different things, aren't they? Final quick one from you, Eleanor, on a different topic. I know it's one that's close to your heart. What is the latest on indoor schools and whether they can be used as lockdown eases? Yeah, so it's still a no at the moment, um, as I found out, well, knew already, but as I experienced at both the shows I went to this weekend, they were both outdoors, but both centres normally have indoor warm ups. So they'd had to done brilliant jobs in, you know, sectioning off part of the outdoors so people could warm up there. But yeah, despite all the best efforts of the governing bodies at the moment, it's still a no, which is a real shame, but they are are still campaigning and, and hoping very much that we'll be able to use them from the 12th of April. Okay, great. Thank you, Eleanor. Alex, and finally, we have asked you to join us today on our new segment because you have been covering the British Show Pony Society Members Conference. And I know that makeup for ponies was a hot topic of conversation there. What was said about that? Yeah, so there were a lot of topics up for discussion at the very first BSPS Members Conference, actually, um, which was kind of a new initiative brought in by the society to yeah give members an opportunity to to speak about those things that they might not get the chance to discuss um, in ordinary circumstances. So National Vice Chair Nigel Hollings um, brought up the issue of makeup and he kind of reinforced the importance of um, owners and riders and producers presenting their ponies with the correct passport. And this kind of stems from people using makeup and hoof oil and the likes to enhance the pony's beauty, but can kind of end up altering the identity of the pony and in the BSPS rule book rule 31 states that a pony must be shown in the name under which it was originally registered with the National Pony Society the Mountain Moreland Stud Books the British Show Pony Society um, British Show Jumping or any other recognized society and um, the identification of ponies must be in accordance with the Joint Measurement Board certificate or national passport at all times or yeah action will be taken against competitors who are found to be breaking this rule and yeah I think many exhibitors are actually breaking this rule without realizing it kind of enhancing markings or covering up socks and Nigel said that we need to be really really kind of aware of um of doing this as we are potentially yeah not showing our ponies in in line with the correct passport gosh okay so quite serious consequences mm-hmm. there and what about false tails and false plats do they fall sort of under the same thing or are they allowed yeah well as as i said um showing a pony um to its true identity um in accordance with the passport is so important but Nigel said that he doesn't really see a difference between a false tail and a false plait in a plaited pony um often ponies which are plaited up throughout the season suffer from thinning manes and popping a little plait in there is not against the law and similarly false tails you know a pony might suffer from a thinning tail popping one in there might not be a problem um, but Paul Cook who is the chairman of judges assessment and conferences he said that there is a massive difference between using a false tail on a plaited pony so a show hunter or a show pony and an M&M pony because a lot of breed standards for the Mountain and Moreland ponies 
Pyrenees, hair is a massive part of their breed standard. So you would not be able to add in a in a false tail as it kind of compromises their confirmation and that's what they're judged on. Um, so in all, it was kind of decided that if you wanted to put a false tail or a plat in a platted pony, that was fine, but um, that would not be allowed in a Mount Moreland pony. Okay, that's really interesting that there's that difference in the different sections. And what else came up at the conference, Alex? Yeah, so there was quite a lot of hype around the um, BSPS Mount Moreland Supreme, which is going to be held at Liverpool this year um, as it's been moved from Olympia. And there was also a bit of discussion. Yeah, in recent years, the Mount Moreland's have got a lot more publicity and opportunities. And there was a bit of um, if platted ponies maybe had the same amount of opportunities as these natives have. And the Society have recognised this and they've actually introduced some new classes at the BSPS Summer Championships and included in this list was a new riding to music class um, where, yeah, platted contenders will basically perform a show to music um, in an evening performance and, yeah, be judged on their yeah style and similar to a dressage competition in a way. But, yeah, quite a new exciting opportunity for platted contenders to to have a go at at the summer champs so yeah great thank you alex it's good to hear about all those uh, developments and discussions in showing and thank you to becky and eleanor for joining us today too so now it's time for our advice segment with vet ricky farr Hi, my name's Rick. I'm one of the vets at Far and Percy Equine. And in this podcast, I'm going to do a topic that's quite close to my own heart and uh, is quite prevalent within our own practice. Um, if I mention the words global warming, climate change, sustainability, carbon footprints, eco-friendly recycling, they, the names just go on and on and on. It's been something quite prevalent in the media and rightly so, actually, that we do live in a changing world and a changing climate. But th- Sometimes we kind of forget the kind of things that we can do at ground level to kind of help all these things. And you probably say to yourself, hang on a minute, uh, climate change has got nothing to do with my horse and sustainability has got nothing to do with my horse. Actually, I, I beg to differ. The horse industry in itself in 2019 had an overall revenue of £4.7 billion to the UK economy. It's a huge, huge industry. And you've got to remember as well, with regards to sustainability and carbon footprints, that has lots of supply chains, has additional jobs. You've got feed merchants, vets, farriers, dentists, physios. The, The list goes on and on. And all of us have our little component to play in reducing carbon emissions. The carbon footprint, actually, believe it or not, of a horse is roughly around a tonne of carbon per year, which doesn't seem like too much. So with the average carbon footprint of your UK resident is approximately around about 13 to 14 tonnes per year. Doesn't sound too bad again. The key is when you come to the equine vet. Now, the equine vet has an average carbon footprint of around 544 tonnes of carbon per year, which is an outstanding standing amount of carbon now as an industry we are now trying to tailor that back we have to reduce that carbon footprint but we can do that with the help of you as the client and as the horse owner these carbon footprints and the amount of carbon that we're kicking out do they have a direct influence globally do they have a direct influence nationally well globally you've only got to look at the news lately the wildfires in australia 
uh, the wildfires in California. The amount and number, you've got tens of thousands of animals that are being displaced, burnt, and, and having all sorts of issues with regards to direct effect of climate change. So it might seem absolutely overwhelming with regards to the evidence for it, but we can all do our little bit. So as a practice, we're starting to reduce our own carbon footprint. And again, I feel incredibly passionate about this. So I've come up with a little list of things that I want you to go back and think of with yourselves at your yard and also with your local veterinary practice. And I'm trying to also encourage other veterinary practices to get involved in this, of which many are. But getting that conversation between you and them is absolutely key. So I've kind of divided our changes within the practice into various areas, Um, energy, travel, um, also coming down to waste and recycling and then down to antibiotic and what we term anthelmintic or wormer use. And we've tried to come up with a, a, a few points where we can actually help from the veterinary side, but a few points where you can actually help as well as the client as well to help us. So from an energy point of view, within our practice, we're converting to LEDs straight across the board. We're powering down all computers. But how many times have you been onto a yard and your lights are left on? It sounds odd, but actually turning those lights off can make a massive impact. A lot of yards aren't on LEDs already. Trying to get your yard to convert itself over to LED lights. Turning off those school lights as well. We've been in the winter months. A lot of those school lights have been on, turning those off. We're considering also investing in solar within the practice. We do have a couple of yards even on our books where they do have solar on site and they're completely off grid and are managing to be self-sufficient on that point of view. One thing within our practice as well is we're trying to improve our insulation. Now, that's never going to happen very much on the yard. I think so we are aware that that can't happen. But again, going back and looking at your yard's energy supplier, how much of that is it from renewable sources? The big thing from the equine vet and probably where we have our biggest area of the carbon footprint is our travel. We're traveling around all day, every day, trying to meet up with as many clients as we can, trying to get around to every single patient. We need to minimise the number of miles that we travel. So what can you do from your point of view on a yard? Get some of the different clients on the yard together. If a load of you are due a vaccination all within the same time, try and reduce the cost of the overall visit. It reduces the cost to you, but also reduces the number of miles that we have to travel. So combining those together. We're trying to zone within the practice. So some of your practices may have zone areas. So again, trying to keep the mileage of the vets down, getting a few more of you together on that individual yard. We're committed here to transferring um, many of our vehicles over to electric. We currently have one on electric um, and we've got another one changing next year. And then hopefully the rest of them will all be converted over the next 10 years. But again, Trying to minimise our footprint again with the overall mileage is really going to help. With regards to water, that's one area that we actually don't use very much of because we're a first opinion practice. But when you look on your yard, how many times have you seen that tap running over with an overflowing bucket? I'm sure many of you out on yards and livery and yard owners are on water meters. Turning that tap off. Don't let it run all the way down, uh, down the yard. Recycling and waste as well. A big thing. How many times have you walked into your feed room or your tack room and seen 101 pots of lotions and potions? We're now offering to take back some of the plastic from our supplements from clients and we will recycle them for you. Um, 
medication boxes that are cardboard. We'll take them back, we'll recycle them. Next time you're on your yard, have a look in the general bin. How much in there is just stuff being just thrown in which could have been recycled? Again, we've all got to do our little part. Talking to your suppliers, your feed merchants, what are they trying to do reducing their carbon footprint? And looking with regards to sustainability on the feed merchant side where, um, from their supply chain and their sources. Antimicrobial use is a large thing for veterinary practice. Um, we're very aware of resistance and we want to reduce the amount of antimicrobials that we actually use. A scary statistic was a paper that came out of the south of France to find that 20% of the drinking water in uh, the area that was assessed actually contained veterinary pharmaceutical residues in the drinking water that was coming into people's houses. We are very aware that excessive antimicrobial use and leaching of some of these medications into the environment does get into the water uh, courses and then into the water tables and then can get directly into your water supply. So we want to reduce the amount of antimicrobials we use. So if you've been given a course, complete the course. If you haven't completed the course, don't just put it in the bin where it could potentially leach. Give it back to your veterinary practice to try and dispose of sensibly and sustainably. And finally, I want to go through anthelmintic, so wormers, that I recently viewed a very, very interesting slow motion video of two dung piles, basically, in on the same farm, but in two separate pastures. One pasture had had the horse wormed with a regular wormer. The other one didn't have it wormed. And you look at the time it took for that dung pile to reduce itself and be broken down by the normal microbes and worms and, and all insects and everything in the environment down to nothing. It astonished me on how slow it was with the actual one that from the horse that had been wormed. We mustn't forget that every time we use a medication, that medication not only is going to be working within the horse, but some of that will leach out the back of it. Now, if that is the case, some of these can work on any of the insects and worms that break all of these things down and it will leach into the environment. It has a massive impact on, on pasture and then also the local eco-cycles and um, microflora and fauna. So there are plenty of things that you can do and hopefully more practices do get involved. But I do genuinely think that as an industry, we have a fantastic structure and which brings so much employment to the economy, but also so much joy to people with regards to horses. So if in 50 to 100 years, we don't manage to get on top of climate change, the chances are in 50 to 100 years, if we have antimicrobial or even worm resistance out there, We'll take worms as an example. They will have an extended parasite life cycle. So getting horses that have consistent burdens throughout the year will have negative impacts on their welfare. Also, I don't know whether you've noticed that our climate in itself is having less of cycles. We're not getting cold, deep winters and really hot summers. We're getting really hot summers. Now we're getting this more temperate climate. That's going to result in longer pasture cycles, increased levels of obesity, laminitis, potential lameness, all things that we need to consider that could potentially escalate in the future. We need to get back to these normal cycles. So I think we can all do something on the yard basis but we can also do a lot on the veterinary side as well and we're committing ourselves um, and being part of the investors in the environment scheme which is government recognized to reduce our own carbon footprint so i want you to actively engage 
with your veterinary practices, with your yard managers, with your livery owners to see what else they can do. We're all in this together. We can all solve it together, but we've all got to make a start at some point. Thank you, Ricky. Next week, Ricky will be joined by the Royal Veterinary College's Andy Fisk-Jackson to talk about what happens when a horse is referred to an equine hospital. I'll be speaking to leading US eventer Boyd Martin about his rides at the upcoming US five-star event at Kentucky. And of course, we'll have all the week's news as normal. Thank you for joining us on the Horse and Hand podcast today. Please do rate, review and share the podcast to help us spread the word. And see you next week. The Horse and Ham Podcast is a Media Cage production.